You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. All right, as you're being seated, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6, we do have our notes available in our Google Drive if you'd like to follow along uh, this morning as well. So I encourage you to access those either today or at a later time um, if you ever need to reference back to things that we discuss on Sundays. We have our previous Revelation notes there as well. In Revelation chapter 6, you'll remember for those that were with us last week, we began to look at um, this chapter and began to see from a big picture perspective the idea that the coming events of history, as challenging and difficult as they may be, they're completely under the control of Jesus who initiates and empowers them to happen. And so as these seals begin to be broken and these events begin to happen, we see war and violence and death. We see plague and famine. We see undesirable circumstances that come on the scene on earth as these seals are broken and as the the scroll begins to unfold and the events of future begin to happen. And uh, we see that Um, despite the evil and the suffering that takes place, we see all of it being submitted to Jesus, that Jesus is the one who opens these seals, that Jesus is the one who is empowering the four horsemen to carry out their tasks, that everything is in submission to Jesus. Um, And so that gives us encouragement as we approach chapter six. I mean, we hit eight points last week, things that really stand out as being truthful statements about uh, Revelation chapter six specifically. First of all, Answering the question of when these things happen is not the priority. Um, That Jesus is not giving us this information in order to tell us when these things happen. Instead, he's wanting us to understand the why when we see these things happening. Why are these things happening and how should we respond when we see them happening? We talked about being faithful and being faithful to evangelize specifically uh, in light of these events. Secondly, we saw that while we don't have all the answers, there's no reason to despair, that it's okay that we don't know all the ins and outs of when these things happen, that God has given us the information that we desperately need, and that's that Jesus wins, that Jesus is in control, and that Jesus brings all things under his subjection. We also saw Jesus being the greatest and most powerful being in Revelation, um, that he controls all the events and they're all guided by him, that he again is the one who is handing out crowns, handing out authority. Um, he is the one who's in control of everything that takes place, uh, so much so that he limits and restrains some of the things that happen. Even in the midst of famine, Jesus is the one who dictates the boundaries and the extent of the famine. Even in the midst of Christians being killed for their faith, Jesus is the one who will limit the amount of Christians that can be killed for their faith. And so he is ultimately in control. He doesn't forget the church. Uh, we see that Jesus is certainly mindful of uh, the saints who have been killed for their faith, and he will execute um, judgment and vindication at the appropriate time. We saw at the end of chapter 6 that the Lamb will return, and he will not forget those who failed to repent that judgment will come upon them. And so therefore we find comfort and hope in Revelation because of the things that we can know. Um, And we even highlighted the fact as an application point that when the saints are confused in heaven, how long, O Lord, will you wait before acting and doing something? That even in their questioning of God, they never doubt his character, right? They talked about him being a sovereign God, a holy God, a true God, a God that can be trusted. And so it reminds us that when we struggle to see God's purposes, in events, 
that we're to remain content with his character. So even in the midst of wars and and death that we have around us, sickness and uh, undesirable circumstances, we may at times question and wonder, where is God in this? But we certainly can't doubt his character in the midst of it. That if we'll remind ourselves constantly that Jesus is in control, that Jesus is holy, that Jesus is set apart, that Jesus is true and good, then it can bring some clarity to circumstances, even if it's not fully answered for us. And that's certainly what we see with the martyrs. Now let's jump back into chapter six and work through the text more specifically starting today. It says in verse one, now I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come. And I looked and behold a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and look, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. And I looked and behold a pale horse and its rider's name was death and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Our summary sentence for today The lamb rules over what appears to be a chaotic world of evil and suffering and will bring matters under his hand of justice at the appropriate time. The lamb rules over what appears to be a chaotic world of evil and suffering and will bring matters under his hand of justice at the appropriate time. I forgot to put our kids' summary sentence up there. Let me see y'all's notes, and I'll give you the answer to it. Our kid's summary sentence is, Jesus rules over all the bad stuff in this world and will respond in judgment at the appropriate time. Jesus rules over all the bad stuff in this world. So the lamb rules over what appears to be a chaotic world of evil and suffering and will bring matters under his hand of justice at the appropriate time. So again, as these seals begin to get broken and events begin to unfold, we see a lot of undesirable circumstances, war and famine and and plague and sickness and death but we see the lamb ruling over all of it. So even when things may feel chaotic around us, when we find out that family members are sick, when we find out someone close to us is dying, um, and, and the uncertainties politically as we, as we look at possible wars in the future, nothing is out of control of the lamb. Evil and suffering fall under him, and eventually at some point at the appropriate time, all matters will come under his hand of justice. And we can take comfort in that. Nothing happens indiscriminately or by chance. So when we watch the news and we see stories, we see things happening, when we take prayer requests on a Sunday morning and we hear of tragedies taking place, 
None of that happens by chance. All of it happens in accordance with God's plan. All of it happens in subjection to the Lamb. Nothing operates outside of his influence. Everything is up underneath Jesus. And that should provide hope and encouragement to us in the midst of chaos at times. I want us to take some time, and this will be a little bit time-consuming, but I think it's important for us to take some time to read some background passages in coming to the Four Horsemen. Um, The Four Horsemen are probably one of the most well-known passages when talking about Revelation. If you look at Revelation art, you're going to see oftentimes depictions of the Four Horsemen. Even people who don't claim a deep knowledge of Revelation have typically heard of the Four Horsemen. And so I think it's going to be helpful for us to best understand them and what they represent by looking at some previous passages that help provide some background information. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to jump to some lengthy passages. So we'll let the Word speak more than myself this morning probably, which is always a good thing. Leviticus chapter 26 is our first passage that I want us to consider. Leviticus chapter 26, and the context for Leviticus chapter 26 is the threat of punishment against Israel for its idolatry. Now, the church, in relationship to Revelation, we've looked at these seven letters to the seven churches. Some of those churches were guilty of idolatry, right? So the current setting that the seals are being given, the churches that are originally reading Revelation, they understand idolatry as some of the churches have given themselves over to idolatry. They've worshipped things that they should not be worshipping. And Leviticus 26, the context of this passage, is Israel being potentially judged for its idolatry. Now I want you to listen and I want you to try to identify some of the similarities in what's being talked about here. God talking in verse 14, but if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all of my commandments but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consume the eyes and make the heart ache, and you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. Famine being talked about right there, right? Like they're they're trying to grow their own food and they don't get to eat it, so there's a shortage of food. I will set my face against you and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you and you shall flee when none pursues you talking about war and conquest. And if in spite of this you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins. How many seals are being broken? Seven. And I will break the pride of your power and I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. Your strength shall be spent in vain for your land shall not yield its increase and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. Then if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins and I will let loose the wild beasts against you which shall bereave you of your children and destroy your livestock and make you few in number so that your roads shall be deserted. And if by this discipline you are not turned to me but walk contrary to me, then I will also walk contrary to you and I myself will strike you sevenfold for your sins. I will bring a sword upon you that shall execute vengeance for the covenant. And if you gather within your cities, I will send pestilence among you and you shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy. When I break your supply of bread, 10 women shall bake your bread in a single oven and shall dole out your bread again by weight and you shall eat and not be satisfied. 
But if in spite of this you will not listen to me but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury, and I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters, and I will destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars. Cast your dead dead bodies upon the dead bodies of your idols, and my soul will abhor you. And I will lay your cities waste and will make your sanctuaries desolate, and I will not smell your blessing your pleasing aromas, and I myself will devastate the land so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it. And I will scatter you among the nations, and I will unsheath the sword after you, and your land shall be a desolation, and your cities shall be a waste. I mean, that sounds very similar to what we're reading in Revelation, right? God says, I'm going to judge you for your idolatry, and I'm going to bring war. I'm going to bring the sword. I'm going to bring wild beasts. I'm going to bring pestilence. I'm going to bring famine. Like all similarities that we see in Revelation, these are acts of judgment of God against idolatry, okay? That gives us a context that God has previously threatened these type of things against his people. Ezekiel chapter 14 is another passage I want us to look at. This too in context is Israel being punished for idolatry. Ezekiel chapter 14 verse 12. The reason I'm showing you this is because I don't want us to think that when we come to Revelation and we read about the four horsemen, that this has to be something unique and never seen before. Like this, is, this is a pattern. This is, this is how God has been operating since the Old Testament. Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 12. And the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, when a land sins against me by acting faithlessly, and I stretch out my hand against it and break its supply of bread and send famine upon it, and cut off from it man and beast. Even these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it. They would deliver, but their own lives by their righteousness, declares the Lord God. If I cause wild beasts to pass through the land, and they ravage it, and be made desolate, so that no one may pass through because of the beast, even if these three men were in it, as I live, declares the Lord God, they would deliver neither sons nor daughters. They alone would be delivered, but the land would be desolate. Or if I bring a sword upon that land and say, let a sword pass through the land, and I cut off from it man and beast, Though these three men were in it, as I live, declares the Lord God, they would deliver neither sons nor daughters, but they alone would be delivered. Or if I send a pestilence into that land and pour out my wrath upon it with blood to cut off from it man and beast, even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live, declares the Lord God, they would deliver neither son nor daughter. They would deliver with their own lives by their righteousness. For thus says the Lord God, how much more when I send upon Jerusalem my four disastrous acts of judgment, sword, famine, wild beast and pestilence to cut off from it man and beast. But behold, some survivors will be left in it, sons and daughters who will be brought out. Behold, when they come out to you and you see their ways and their deeds, you will be consoled for the disaster that I have brought upon Jerusalem for all that I have brought upon it. They will console you and when you see their ways and their deeds and you shall know that I have not done without cause all that I have done in it, declares the Lord God. Again, very similar to what we're reading in Revelation the idea that God brings these things as an act of judgment. In fact, uh, verse 21 is basically quoted in Revelation chapter 6, verse 8. Let's jump to Zechariah now. Zechariah, second to last book in the Old Testament, verse one or chapter 1. Context of Zechariah is punishment being handed out towards other nations, not Israel, that went beyond what they were supposed to do in punishing Israel. We know that oftentimes God used other nations to punish Israel for their acts of treachery against him, 
right? They began to worship other gods, and so God would bring in other nations to punish them. But oftentimes, those nations became guilty of the same sins, and so then God would have to enact judgment upon those nations. That's what's happening in Zechariah chapter 1. Um, let's start reading in verse 7. It says, On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shebat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Ido, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. Then I said, What are these, my Lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah among which you have been angry these 70 years? And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, Cry out thus, says the Lord of hosts, I'm exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. And I'm exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, my city shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. All right, here in context, we have people riding on horses. And these, uh, these horses and the riders of these horses are identified as God's agents who are sent out to patrol the earth. Now we jump ahead to Zechariah chapter 6, verse 1. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked to me, what are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, these are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. The chariot with the black horses goes towards the north country. The white ones go after them and the dappled ones go toward the south country. When the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, go patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. Then he cried to me, behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. Here again, we have pictures of horses, riders of horses being used as God's agents to go out to the earth, to patrol the earth, and to carry out his will. Now we jump ahead to Matthew chapter 24. And again, what I'm wanting you to see is that what we find in Revelation is not that out of ordinary. It's not that unusual, that this is how God has operated. This is how God has talked and spoken leading up to Revelation. Matthew chapter 24, verse 6. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. 
So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, and no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. So leading up to the end and leading up some of the events that even took place um, during that time, we hear about the wars and the famines and the earthquakes and the, the, the people rising up against each other and killing each other. Events that are very similar to what we're reading about in Revelation chapter 6. The four horsemen represent calamities that occur indefinitely before the second coming, but seem to intensify as we draw closer to the end. They bring destruction, but in subjection to the Lamb. So what I want us to see is that this type of events have been happening all along, leading up to Revelation chapter 6. In fact, Jesus tells us to expect these type of things, and that these are just the beginning of the end time birth pains. So these things happen indefinitely leading up to the second coming, but they seem to intensify as we get closer to Jesus coming back. All the while, everything remains in subjection to the Lamb. The seals reveal that Christ's authority extends even over situations of suffering, which have been sent from the hand of God to purify saints and punish unbelievers. They are opened in the throne room under his care and direction. They are not an accident, and they don't originate with Satan. So sometimes these four horsemen are pictured as though they are the evil agents that work against Jesus, and in some aspects they are, but ultimately it is Jesus who summons the four horsemen. It's Jesus who sends these riders out. And as we see in the Old Testament, these are pictures of God's agents going about the earth, patrolling the earth, and doing exactly what he tells them to do. And oftentimes these things that are occurring are used as instruments of judgment, both on God's people and on the nations that persecute God's people. So there's an aspect here as we read about these four horsemen. I think think there's a mixture here. Are the four horsemen coming to judge the earth? Yes. Are they coming to potentially judge and purify the church? Yes. We see both in the Old Testament how God uses them to, to work against Israel and to work against nations that are working against Israel. So I think there's probably a mixture here that we can expect as well. When there's conquest and war and famine, that part of this is to bring about purification of the church because as we've seen in the seven churches, there was idolatry that had creeped in. There was impurity that had creeped in. There was adultery and false teaching. And so God is going to use these events to purify the church, but also to bring judgment upon those who are persecuting the church. Let's take a look now at the first four seals, what we commonly call the four horsemen. So going back to Revelation chapter 6. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. 
The first horse that we see is the white horse. It's a conquering war that comes. For our kids, it's a white horse and it represents war. So he's summoned and he comes with a bow and a crown is given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. And as this conquering takes place, we see the results of the war happening in the next three seals with uh, the killing and the bloodshed, with the famine that oftentimes accompanies war, the disease and the pestilence and the death that occurs as well. Now again, there's a lot of dispute as to who the writer is here. Um, and there's a, there's a good many commentaries that believe this is, this is representative of Christ. Um, and I think part of the main reason, so there's other supporting arguments, but the main reason that people want to hang their hat on the idea of this being Jesus who rides on this white horse is because Jesus rides on a white horse in chapter 19. So if you flip to Revelation chapter 19, you see Jesus is returned. You see him coming on a white horse. And so there's some similarities there. The argument is let Revelation interpret Revelation If it's Jesus riding on a white horse in chapter 19, it must be Jesus riding on the white horse in chapter 6. In fact, this idea goes way back to the beginning of the church as well. So it's not that far-fetched to believe that this may be Christ. Um, Part of the other supporting evidence is the fact that Jesus and the idea of conquering is one of John's main themes in his writings, not just in Revelation. He uses the word conquering just one time in his Gospel of John. In John chapter 16, verse 33 says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. The Greek word there is the same word used for conquering in Revelation. So, but take heart, I have conquered the world. You see this theme of conquering running through Revelation. Revelation 3.21 talks about those that conquer with Jesus will receive um, reward in heaven. Revelation 5, 5 describes Jesus as the conquering lamb. And then in Revelation chapter 17, verse 14, they will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them for he is Lord of lords and king of kings and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. So there's some good supporting evidence for why this could be Jesus. In fact, there's, there's kind of a, an alteration of the view that it's not just Jesus, it's specifically the gospel. And so the picture of the white horse here is the rider being the gospel and the gospel goes forth, it conquers and then it leads to the response of war and famine and death and persecution. And that may be the case. Um, I'm not overly convinced that the white horse and the rider on the white horse is necessarily a good thing, which it would be if it's the gospel, it would be if it was Jesus. Um, I think some reasons maybe not to see it as Christ is first of all in chapter six, We're talking about a rider having a bow, whereas in chapter 19, Jesus has a sword. He has to be given a crown in chapter 6, whereas in chapter 19, Jesus is said to have many crowns. You also have to reconcile the fact that Jesus is the one opening the seal. He's the one commanding the riders to come forth, and then you have to turn around and have him be one of the riders on the horse after he's commanded it to happen. So Kind of a weird play there for Jesus to be the one doing things and then have to kind of reverse roles and be the one who goes out on the horse. Um, also, in addition to that, um, you're talking about Jesus having to take commands from the living creature who calls forth the white rider. And so I don't think this is Jesus in Revelation chapter 6. Um, I don't think it's clear who it is. And I think the fact that death and Hades are seen, seen as the rider in the Revelation or the fourth horse is that it's probably not a specific individual. 
that it's representative of the idea of war happening and conquest happening. Uh, it could be tied to the Antichrist. It could be tied to governments that persecute Christians. Um, it could simply be tied to devil servants in general. Um, I don't think it's that important who's riding on this horse. Um, what I think we see here is that conquest happens, but ultimately we see this white horse, the rider of this white horse being in subjection to Jesus, that Jesus is the one who gives power uh, to it. Um, it could also be tied to deception because as we see these events unfold in other passages in Matthew 24 and in Second Thessalonians 2, there's great deception that happens right before wars and rumors of wars and famine. And so this may too be tied to the idea of conquest happening through deception. I don't want to spend too much time on the speculative parts because um, I don't think that's the purpose and intent of the chapter. So we're going to move right into chapter or, or verse, four, uh, verse 3, talking about the second horse. It says, When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. The idea here with the red horse typically is seen as civil war or war amongst the same people. Um, for our kids, it represents, uh, it's the color red and it represents bloodshed. So as conquest takes place and nations are rising up above other nations, oftentimes once nations get big, it leads to conflict within those nations. This certainly could be tied into the idea of um, unrest within a nation in regards to Christians and persecution taking place in those nations. Um, specifically, the idea uh, of being slaughtered, it says in, um, so that people should slay one another and he was given a great sword. If you skip down to that fifth seal where it talks about those um, under the altar, those who had been slain for the word of God, it's the same word, people slaying each other and then these people being slain for the word of God. So there's a good possibility that what's being referenced with the red horse is the persecution of the church and the death of the martyrs that we see in the fifth seal. What we do know is that the red horse brings unrest by removing peace. Uh, people are against each other. They're fighting amongst themselves. Um, Matthew 24.10, we read already, kind of highlights the idea that in the last days, people will rise up against each other, fight amongst themselves, and kill each other. And so the red horse certainly represents bloodshed that is coming in the end times. We read now in um, verse 5, it says, When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. That third horse is the black horse. It represents famine. Scales always represent uh, a famine-type rationing in this type of context in Scripture. Um, we're typically guarded and protected from even a concept of famine, uh, but we're certainly living in a day and age where famine is rampant on our planet. Um, a conservative number that I read in studying and and this is probably old by now, but um, the commentator at the time said currently 800, or 805 million people do not have enough food to live a healthy, active life. 805 million people. You know, even in our trip to Uganda, as we were, as we were walking and, and, and visiting different areas of Uganda, we weren't in the poorest of the poor of Uganda, and there was a, a shortage of food and a shortage of, of health and a shortage of 
um, money to purchase for these families to even eat. And what we've heard from Chris and Melissa both is that the further north you go, the worse it gets as far as the amount of food that's provided for those people and the amount of money able to purchase that. So we certainly live in a day and age where due to... um, due to natural consequences, famine results where there's just not enough food or where people live in situations where they don't have enough money to purchase food. Uh, Famine is something that's certainly common right now on our planet. And so as we talk about these events happening um, up until Jesus comes back, we're certainly seeing that happening right now. Wars and rumors of wars, famine, death, sickness, persecution is certainly taking place across our globe even today in all these aspects. Um, the famine guidelines are given from Jesus, and I think that's an important note here, that Jesus summons this famine, Jesus allows this famine to take place, but Jesus sets the parameters for the famine. Jesus is the voice that we see in verse 6 dictating the, the cost of food here. Um, the cost of food, if, you, if you're looking at it, um, it's probably 8 to 16 times what the normal price would have been for these things. It ultimately means that one day's pay was enough to buy food for the day. So there was no leftover money. There was no way to save. There was no way to purchase anything really beyond food. So it's a serious famine, but it's not utterly devastating in the sense that uh, the oil and the wine is not allowed to be touched. And so Jesus sets parameters in such a way where he controls the outcome of the famine. We could also see potentially some economic persecution taking place with this black horse, not strictly famine like we think of in Genesis where there just wasn't enough food to go around. Remember, we talked about the church at Thyatira and how they were having to basically sell themselves to these trade guilds where they had to worship false gods in order to purchase um, and and to sell, which would have been their, their livelihood, their jobs. We see later in Revelation, and we'll get to it eventually, the idea of the mark of the beast in chapter 13, where this was necessary to have in order to buy, trail, buy and trade and sell within that economy. And so it's possible that it's not strictly talking about famine, but there's also some economic persecution that may take take place towards believers, that if they cling to the word, if they continue to testify to Jesus, that economic persecution could take place. But I think the important thing to note here with the black horse is that Jesus controls the black horse. And we've seen in the book of Genesis when we studied through it, famines arise in the book of Genesis, and Jesus is the one controlling the famines in those contexts as well, right? Jesus is the one that allows the famine to take place most recently in our, in our memory in the, um, the story of Joseph, right? That, that Joseph knows the famine's going to happen through a vision. Jesus communicates that to him. He also tells him exactly how long that famine is going to last. He also tells him exactly how to survive the famine. And that famine results in Israel coming to Egypt and being preserved and growing into the great nation that we see throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Jesus uses famine for good purposes. Um, and he's using famine for purposes here as part of his plan with the black horse. That leads us into the fourth horse, which is called the pale horse. The word here is typically for a pale green type color, that sick, deathly color. It says, when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. And I looked and behold, a pale horse and its rider's name was death and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. It's important to remember that death and Hades riding upon this horse are the same death and Hades that Jesus has the keys of control for. Remember in chapter 1, verse 18, Jesus is stated to be the one 
who holds the keys to death and Hades. And so ultimately, death and Hades are in subjection to God. Ultimately, their destination is known to us as well. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 13 and 14, we're told that death and Hades both will be cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. Death, I put this in my notes, death cannot act apart from the plans and purposes of the Lamb. Death cannot act apart from the plans and the purposes of the Lamb. His influence is limited, his activity is restricted, and his boundaries are determined. We're told that even as death and Hades ride forth on this fourth horse, they only are given authority over a fourth of the earth. They're not even permitted to kill everything that they would want to kill. Death is completely subjected to the purposes of the Lamb. I mean, that, that, you read that, and I hopefully, I want you to get to the point where you can read that and then hear things like this week when the, when the church um, van that, that was riding on the interstate to the airport on, a, on its way to send these kids off on a mission trip flips over and a girl dies in the midst of writing in her journal, according to her mom, that she's completely in the will of God, can't wait to get on the mission field, can't wait to keep serving Jesus, and that he means everything to her. And for whatever reason that we don't understand, God takes her home when she's on the way to the mission field. It doesn't make any sense to us, but we can't, we can't hear that event and think, well, that's by accident or, or that was contrary to the best possible plan that God had when we know that death and Hades are submitted to the lamb, right? Jesus holds the keys to death. Death can't do anything that Jesus doesn't permit. And that ought to be encouraging to us when we read something like this. We see that death and Hades ride forth on this horse, but their authority is given to them. It's given to them by the lamb and they can only do so much. They're only able to do what they're permitted to do. God uses death for his purposes. Which brings us to the seal, the fifth seal, where we see death being used for his purposes. It says in verse 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. The fifth seal, the martyrs in heaven for our kids asked you to, to think through two questions. I wanted to give you the answers. According to Revelation 6, 9, why are these Christians killed? They're killed for believing the Bible and telling others about Jesus. It says that their death, their being slain is tied to the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And as they cry out to God, God gives them white robes and tells them to wait, to wait upon his timing. The martyrs in heaven. I think there's a, three things real quick that we see in looking at them. First of all, in death, we are with Christ awaiting resurrection. Just pause for a second and, and reinforce our theology about what happens when we die. Because this is a vision of people who have died and what is happening to them right now. What's happening to them? They're not asleep, right? They're not waiting in, in some type of soul sleep state where they're, they're unconscious waiting for Jesus to come back. Here we're told they, they are in a physical location. They are under the altar, the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. But notice it's their souls, right? Like there's a distinguishing word used here. 
It's not they themselves. They aren't there. It's their souls indicating to us that part of them is not there, and that's their bodies, right? When we think about people dying and going before us, let's keep in mind that they leave their bodies behind and that that's not okay for eternity, right? They're, not, they're in a better place, perhaps, but they're certainly not in their glorified state yet. So when we talk about funerals and we talk about loved ones and we talk about people dying, let's keep in mind the fact that their souls go before us, but they are awaiting resurrection. That there's a glorious thing that is still to occur for all believers. All believers are waiting for this to happen. Jesus comes back and new bodies are given. And these souls are waiting for that. They are in heaven. They're not asleep, but they are incomplete. They're awaiting their bodies. They're awaiting resurrection. Number two, our death is not an accident. Our death is not an accident. We can see that as they cry out to God about what has happened to them, God's not panicking. Jesus isn't concerned as though he's shocked that they're there for being killed for their faith, nor is he shocked over the fact that more are still to come. In instructing them, he tells them to wait. Why? Because there's still more of them that are supposed to be there. Rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who are to be killed as they themselves had been. God has determined the death of his saints, and they do not come as a surprise to him. And in fact, if we fast forward to Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, it says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes, peoples, and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Who are these? Verse 13 says, one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to them, sir, you know, He said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Those that are to be killed for their faith is a great number, a number that really can't even be counted. And so Jesus tells these people to wait, to wait a little longer for the justice that they're crying out for. Our death is not an accident. Number three, our death will result in vindication. Our death will result in vindication. We will be judged righteous, which is signified by them being given white robes. They are found righteous because of Jesus's work. We will be judged righteous for holding to the word and testifying about him. And Jesus promised that this type of persecution would take place and that it would give us an opportunity to testify of our faith. In Luke chapter 21, verse 10, then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom should conjure up the idea of the white horse and the conquest taking place. There will be great earthquakes and in various places, famines and pestilences. Again, this is, this is the four horsemen coming out. There will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and they'll persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. You think these people would have ever come before kings and governors if they weren't on trial for their faith? Probably never. They probably would have never crossed paths with some of these people. But Jesus says, hey, your faith is gonna get you into trouble 
and it's going to result in you being brought before kings and governors, and this is going to be your great opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my namesake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. That's what we see here with these martyrs, right? They, they've, they've done this. They've held to the word. They've testified about Jesus. They've been killed for it. And they're being given white robes. They're being vindicated. They're being judged righteous. But that's not enough, right? They're still crying out, hey, when do we really get vindicated? When do you right all of the wrongs? They're awaiting proper justice. They want to see the reversal of things that are not right. Now, I asked you this morning, how does that mesh with Luke 23, 34, where Jesus is dying on the cross and he's, he's asking his father to forgive those that are killing him? And then fast forward to Acts chapter 7, Stephen is being stoned for his faith and he's saying, don't count this against those that are doing it. Don't count this sin against them. How do, how do we mesh that with this cry for justice? I think it's important for us to see that justice and punishment is part of God's will. Romans chapter 12, verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him, thirsty, give him something to drink. You heap burning coals on his head, do not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So, first of all, the indication here is that these martyrs in heaven would have no rightful claim to seek vengeance themselves upon those that have killed them. But it's very right for them to expect God to do something because here we are told vengeance belongs to God, that it's right for God to bring justice to these situations. Um, I think I heard Dan talking in his group about um, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, where we're told that relief is coming to the saints and judgment is coming upon the persecutors when Jesus returns. In 2 Thessalonians 1, 5, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Here's how I think we mesh these two. Justice needs to happen. Wrath needs to occur because of this sin. Jesus can cry out for forgiveness to happen towards these people. Stephen can anticipate and hope for forgiveness towards these people. But it doesn't mean that their sin is not ever dealt with, right? The idea here is that these people who are killing Stephen and Jesus would have their sin dealt with on the cross, that God's justice would be served on the cross towards them. But at some point, at some point in history, time will expire for that type of repentance. Time will expire for sin to be punished on the cross and people will be responsible for their sin. That happens when Jesus comes back and he inflicts his vengeance. And that's something that we can hope for and that is something right to hope for. Those guilty of persecuting the church will be held accountable. But what's great to know is they won't be held accountable until the gospel goes forth. Mark 13, 10 says, this doesn't happen until the gospel goes forth everywhere. 
right? All excuses are eliminated because the gospel has gone forth and people have rejected it. He also won't hold them responsible for persecuting the church until all come to repentance. 2 Peter 3, 9 reminds us the delay, the waiting that these martyrs are told to, to wait on, their waiting is due to the fact that God desires all to come to repentance. So think about this. The martyrs are saying, bring justice, God. And God is saying, not yet, because some of these persecutors are gonna get saved. And the justice that they will endure will instead be applied to the cross and they'll be forgiven of their acts towards you. So God says, wait, not yet, because I'm not done saving people yet. And it will only happen when the last martyr dies. Jesus says, when the number is complete, then I will act. He's gonna do what's right. He's gonna do what's right. It it took me back to Genesis chapter 18 when Abraham and God are talking about God acting rightly towards Sodom and not punishing the righteous next to the wicked. In 18 verse 25 of Genesis, it says, far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked. So the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Abraham says, I expect you to do what's right and what is just. And we certainly see God do that in Genesis chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, one through eight is another passage where God reminds us as we cry out for justice, God will respond and act in a just way. Some truths that I want us to cling to as an application point as we wrap up from the five seals here. We've seen the four horsemen. Hopefully we've seen in looking at some of these other passages, this isn't something that strictly happens in the future only that God has been operating this way all the time. He brings this type of judgment upon people for their unfaithfulness. He uses the terminology of horses as being agents that ride around on the earth doing his plan. One of the trees that we can cling to here is one, the events described in the five seals are beginning events that have been occurring and will continue to occur as part of God's plan. This is so important, and this is part of our family worship for the week so important for us to recognize and see that war and rumors of wars and famines and earthquakes, these are things that happen by God's plan. And they will happen up until Jesus comes back. And they will probably get worse before they get better. But they are part of God's plan. And at times, he is specifically making these things happen for his purposes, which really should shape the way that we pray about them. I don't think that we should pray all the time that God stop these things or God end these things. Instead, I think it can shape the way that we pray that God would allow Christians who are in the midst of these things to persevere and to testify faithfully. That God would use the famines or the wars and the earthquakes, whatever it is that he's doing, that he would use them for his purposes. Not that he would stop them or end them. I mean, he's breaking seals and these are intentional things that are happening. We don't want these things to stop, right? John's crying in heaven because they're not happening. Right? Where is the one who's worthy to do this? Finally, Jesus comes forth and says, I'm the one that's worthy to do this. So I don't think we should pray for these things to end necessarily. I think we pray that God's will is accomplished in the midst of them because they are gonna be happening and will continue to happen until God sends Jesus. Number two, we are on the side of the one who holds the fate of history in his hands. We are on the side of the one who holds the fate of history in his hands. We can be thankful the lamb is opening the seals. Now, it may cause some 
some conflict for us. How can a God allow famine? How can a God allow his faithful to be killed? How can a God be all-powerful and all-loving and allow those things to happen? There may be some friction and some tension that we're working through, but at the end of the day, I'm very thankful that it's the lamb who is opening these seals and that I'm having to wrestle with how a good God allows these things to happen versus Satan having authority and power on his own accord to be able to do this and God having to react to it all the time, right? This is God unfolding his plans, not God reacting to some satanic agenda. We're on the side of the one who holds the fate of history in his hands. Be thankful the lamb is opening the seals. And then number three, the end will come at the appropriate time. And while we are told to wait patiently, we will not have to wait forever. Kind of goes back to the fact, I mean, I'd love to be able to tell you exactly when these four horsemen come riding out and when these events take place in their finality, right? Like they've been happening since the Old Testament and they're gonna continue to happen until Jesus comes back. But I do think this points to a specific time in the future where this really intensifies. And I don't know when that happens. I don't know when conquest and war and bloodshed and persecution and famine will reach its all-time height. I'd love to be able to tell you that. What I can tell you is that we're being told to wait until the end of it all for right now. We're told to patiently wait but what's attached to that idea of waiting is that we will not have to wait forever. We don't have to wait forever. That this will all come to an end with Jesus winning everything. We're told to wait, but we don't have to wait forever. We're still asking the question of when, but the will question has been answered. Will this ever happen? Will Jesus ever put an end to this? That question is being answered. He absolutely will after a time of waiting. Um, Family worship questions for this week. I want you to read through Mark 13. We did not read this one this morning. Read through Mark 13 and discuss what events will occur prior to Jesus's return. And then number two, how should we pray as Christians when we see these events happening? Again, my goal and hope is that when we see stuff in the news, when we experience stuff ourselves, when we see wars and rumors of wars and death and famine and sickness, Again, we're not touched by all those things, but we're certainly touched by some of those things. I mean, even this morning in our prayer request, mentioning multiple people who are sick, and um, some of those are far more serious than other sicknesses. And in the midst of sickness, in the midst of death, in the midst of these things that are being talked about, we don't lose hope in thinking that these things happen by chance or by accident, that none of these things can occur without the Lamb's consent. And the Lamb is controlling all of these things for His good purposes. Let's pray together. God, we come to you this morning and we're very thankful for Revelation chapter 6. God, we're thankful that we get a glimpse of what's coming in the future. And while we don't know the when, while we don't know all the what, we can certainly take comfort in the fact that you are in control of all of it. And God, I I would love to know when these horses start riding. I would love to know who's sitting upon these horses. But God, I want to I learn from the disciples who asked those same questions and you told them not to worry about the answers, that they weren't important, that they, they didn't need to know. God, help us to be content with not knowing some of those things and not walk away disappointed. Help us to, to take comfort and encouragement in the things that we can see and that we can know. 
Father, we're thankful that when we hear of these events, famines and sickness and death and wars and conquest and bloodshed, when we see on the news Christians who are being beheaded for their faith, God, I pray that it would encourage us to know that you're in control of all of those events. When we hear about the tragedies of Christians dying at a, at a too young age for us, that we take comfort in knowing that death cannot do anything without your permission. God, help us to be comforted by the things that are given to us in Revelation chapter 6, that the Lamb controls everything, and that evil and suffering around us is for a purpose. God, what despair we would have today if these things were happening, if people were dying around us, Christians were being killed around us, people were subjected to famine and sickness around us, and it had no purpose. What a despairing situation that would be. But Father, we thank you that we can see through Revelation chapter 6 that the Lamb is in heaven calling for these things to happen for specific reasons and specific purposes. Father, I pray that we would find encouragement in that while we don't know the timing of things, you certainly do. And that you've called us to wait, to wait patiently, but to wait expectantly, knowing that there is a timetable. There is a day when this all ends and people are held accountable for their sin and believers are vindicated. Father, we look forward to that day. But God, instead of sitting around wondering when that's gonna happen, help us to be vigilant knowing that it will happen and that we have a job to do until then. Father, help us to take advantage of every opportunity that we have to witness, to be a, a, a testimony in the midst of our circumstances. Lord, in the same way that these Christians in Luke were told that they would be brought before kings and governors and being given opportunity to testify, God, help us to realize that our undesirable circumstances oftentimes brings us into the paths of people we would have never met before. Lord, help us to take comfort in the fact that when we are diagnosed with a sickness, that we are brought before doctors and nurses that we would have never met before, that we have opportunity to point them to Jesus. God, help us to see that you use those type of circumstances in our life for your glory. Help us not to miss those opportunities. Lord, I pray that this week we would continue to endure, that we would continue to fight sin, we would continue to strive for faithfulness in our own lives, that we would do that together as a local church. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.